0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, join me, if you would, in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. We should wrap up chapter 16 and get our first glimpse of chapter 17 today. John 16, which is point eight in our outline. Jesus picks up his train of thought from chapter 15 with a warning concerning the angelic conflict and the coming dispensation of the church. Really, the chapter divisions are artificial anyway. And so you have uh, from uh, 1331 all the way through 1726. Go ahead and just make that one great big chapter. <laughs> as far as that goes. If you f- have to absolutely have a chapter division, I guess you could have one between chapter 14 and 15. I don't mind that one, I suppose. Uh, where he says, get up, let us go from here. And then uh, they, they leave the upper room at that point, And then in chapters 15, 16, and 17, they are walking on the way to the garden. And it's not until eighteen one that he finishes the discourse, finishes the prayer, and... Uh, then he goes forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So, uh, in any event, we are on the walk to the garden in John 16. Jesus picks up his train of thought from chapter 15 with a warning concerning the angelic conflict and the coming dispensation of the church. That's point eight in our outline. The warning concerning the angelic conflict and the coming dispensation of the church. And um, the warning comes in these early verses here. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. There's going to be a whole crowd of people that want you dead. And not only do they want you dead, but they think that by killing you, they're getting ahead. They're serving God. They're scoring points that they'll, they'll uh, you know, reap for all eternity. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, in other words, when in the permissive will of God, the forces of darkness are given permission to have temporal uh, victory over you, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. All right. This is where we are. Let's uh, start with a word of prayer to make sure that distractions are set aside, that we are humble under the authority of the word of God and uh, get right to it. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. On this occasion, Father, once again, we have the blessing of assembling together to receive this instruction. I thank you for this Wednesday morning class. In a lot of ways, Father, it's unique among every class that we do teach around here. And, uh, and I do thank you for it. I rejoice over all these hours you've fed us in the life of Christ. I'm looking forward to uh, finishing out this, uh, this course. And Father, uh, particularly on this, uh, this particular section, the night in which our Savior was betrayed, you'd think he'd have a lot on his mind. You'd think he'd have um, things to do himself to get ready to prepare his own soul for the battles ahead. And yet, the bulk of this night, he spends preparing his disciples for what they're going to do after he's gone. And so, Father, uh, uh, there's a lot of meat here. There's a lot of uh, power to be uh, found and obtained. In uh, John 13 through 17, and I just rejoice that we have the blessing once again today to study to show ourselves approved. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus name. Amen. I tell you, there's times I wish I could just spend the rest of my life in John 13 through 17. There's just such um, such power to be gleaned here. Well, let's look at it again. We're really uh, ready to wrap it down. Uh, we've covered subpoints A, B, and C. And then I promised you I was going to rewrite D, which I did. So uh, I'll give you the rewritten D here this morning. And then uh, we'll give the E and F before we can move on into chapter 17. But we see right off the bat that there is conflict in store. If you think we're not going to have conflict, then think again. That's what we have to deal with. It is what it is. Uh, conflict. And they think they're serving God for it. All right? And so uh, this is what we're looking at. Point A, then. Doctrinal preparation for angelic conflict prevents against stumbling. Doctrinal preparation for angelic conflict prevents against stumbling. You're better off knowing about it ahead of time. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Next time you stumble, ask yourself, What doctrine should I have been paying attention to (laughs) so that had I made the proper application, I wouldn't have stumbled the way that I did? Okay, Realize that sometimes people are your stumbling block. That's the one I think we're most familiar with. But other times we have testing and circumstances and angelic conflict that provides the stumbling block that could have been prevented if we'd have been paying closer attention during the time of our uh, uh, preparation. So these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Let's pay attention to the truth as it's going forth. Because the doctrine he's equipping you with today is the doctrine you're going to be tested on for application uh, here very quickly, either this week, next week, in the coming months. Uh, Don't be amazed that uh, the the feeding he gives you is very applicable for the upcoming teaching or the upcoming testing. And that's what we looked at there in main point A. These things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. When their hour comes. What's their hour? Okay, well, we understand. We've been dealing with the hour. All this time, his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. Um, He tells his disciples, and he tells his brothers in John chapter 7, it's not my time, but it's always your time. There's a difference whether you're saved or not, whether you're serving the Lord or you're serving the adversary, okay? And for those who are serving the adversary, when God the Father gives them an hour, when he gives them a season uh, in which to afflict you, you better be ready. All right. When their hour comes, their hour comes because God the Father is giving them permissive will to afflict you. And that's either going to be for divine discipline uh, or for undeserved suffering, whichever the case. When the Father gives them that hour, they're going to take it. <laughs> okay. There's not a fallen angel anywhere in the universe that's given an hour to afflict you that turns that opportunity down. They never get a chance to afflict believers unless these specific hours that are given to them. Okay. Different uh, different passages there that we've seen. Job 1, uh, uh, 2 Kings 22, passages like that that we've studied on previous occasions. All right, now secondly, denial is not an option. Denial is not an option. Now, this is kind of the routine these disciples go through. He's teaching them and they don't want to hear it. He's telling them things they don't want to believe. And so they're not going to even ask him questions. So he says at the end of verse 4 here in 4b, These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. So he has to give them this message on this night. There's no other time for him to do it. And he didn't give it before. John thirteen thirty. All right, It takes the, the betrayer to go out to go fetch the soldiers, and uh, in John 13:31, now is the Son of Man glorified. Okay, And at this point, he has to give them this message to prepare them for his uh, arrest, his crucifixion, his departure. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? And because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. If a Bible class fills your heart with sorrow, Better ask him why. All right. Why? Is this a godly sorrow? Is this a sorrow that leads to repentance? Is this a sorrow according to the will of God? The different classifications of sorrow we study in 2 Corinthians. Okay. Or is it a wrong kind of sorrow? Do I have a carnal sorrow based upon my unwillingness to accept the truth? Am I living in denial? All right. It is not an option. Not in the plan of God. Such doctrine must be faced with complete acceptance and say, Lord, all right, I don't have to like it, but I do have to accept that it's true. This is your will. And so not my will, but thine be done. And there you go. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Don't you want the church age to start? (laughs) Don't you want the church age to start? There's greater things ahead. You know, it boggles the mind. And we're all human, so we all do it. But believers that spend their time moping over the past, dwelling on the, the good old days, okay? Well, let me tell you something. The good old days weren't all that good. But you have turned them into an idol. And now in your memory of those good old days, they are far better than they actually were when you were going through them, Okay? When you were going through them, you were moping about other things, but now you don't remember those other things because you spend all your time now moping about why it can't be like it was then. And you're just, you're, you're just as pathetic as the, Egyptian, or as the Israelites that wanted to go back to Egypt because they thought, oh, we had it made back in Egypt. We could eat all this great stuff. And you're following the Lord in the wilderness, eating the manna. Your shoes aren't wearing out. Everything is perfect for you, and you want to go back to Egypt because that's the good old days. All right. Well, you can't turn back the clock, and you can't stop the clock. The plan of God is unfolding, and the next step is coming up. Are you ready for the next step? Okay. Are you ready for the next step? It'd be it'd be like the congregation just totally wailing and boo-hooing and lamenting and denying. And when uh, when the, the time came for the Lord Jesus Christ to remove Ralph and Dorothy from. From this congregation, you know, uh, that door was closing. Ralph was pastor for 13 years and that came to an end. And I don't blame you for boohooing and weeping and wailing. And I was doing the same thing like, Ralph, why do you got to go? And then, well, because it's the plan of God. All right. Ralph goes and and it's my turn and I step in and and, you know. Well, there you go. (laughs) More weeping and wailing. But, the, uh, but the, the the fact is, you know, do we just grumble and lament and say, you know, why do we have to put up with this knucklehead? Why can't we have Ralph back again? Well, that's not the Lord's wisdom. The Lord's wisdom is for Ralph to be in Kansas and for me to be here, see? And so these are the things. And it should be the same thing, too, when, when the Lord takes families and moves them to different places and, you know, people don't stay in the same church their entire lives. It's not a life sentence, uh, you know, to be condemned to Austin Bible Church you're going to be here in the will of God see and when it's time for the Lord to take you elsewhere he's going to do that see when you leave for the right reasons He can also leave for the wrong reasons and that's a different different topic now I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away we can rephrase that to say it is to your advantage to be obedient to the plan of God to take each step in agreement with the plan of God and in this case it is to your advantage that you depart from the dispensation of Israel and enter into the dispensation of the church you don't want to stay in the dispensation of Israel to your dying day. Some did. There were some believing Old Testament saints that rejected Christ, rejected Jesus as being the Christ. Now, they didn't lose their salvation because no one can lose their salvation. They're still saved. But what happened was they died and they're going to spend all eternity in the estate of Israel rather than in the royal family of God. You see the difference? They don't lose their salvation. They're still saved. They're going to die and in their case, go to Abraham's bosom or after Christ takes that to heaven. They're going to die and go to heaven, but they're not going to be a part of the bride of Christ. They're not royal family of God. They're not in the church. They never entered into the church. See? And so they're going to have all eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth, as a part of the estate of Israel or Gentiles if they're a Gentile believer. And they failed to cross into the church. How tragic for that first century, that transition generation. All right, denial is not an option. Thirdly, the coming church will be the greatest stewardship with the greatest advantage ever enjoyed by the vested stewards. The coming church will be the greatest stewardship with the greatest advantage ever enjoyed by the vested stewards. Israel had an advantage over the Gentiles, no question. You know, a Moabite could still get saved. But they were going to get saved based upon information revealed to Hebrew prophets and Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> okay. The Jewish people had tremendous advantage. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay. Romans chapter 3. Understand this. Israel had a tremendous advantage in their stewardship. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory, resided in their, in their temple, in their capital city. Uh, he went before them in battle when they were walking in the light. <laughs> okay, When they were walking in darkness, he went in front of the Arameans and whooped up on his own people. We saw that a couple of weeks back. The coming church will be the greatest stewardship with the greatest advantage ever enjoyed by vested stewards. Verses 7-15. through 15. And I went ahead and outlined some of these advantages. A glorified Christ in the Father's presence. A glorified Christ in the Father's presence. That's huge. When uh, when the Gentiles had their stewardship, when Israel had their stewardship, they were looking forward to a coming Christ. A coming Christ in the Father's presence. A coming Messiah to deliver us. We have a, a Christ who came. Who not only came, but achieved eternal victory. Who is seated at the Father's right hand with total glory. A Christ seated in session to intercede on our behalf. Based upon a past completed work on the cross. If any of us sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jews and Gentiles prior to the cross did not have this advantage in their stewardship. All right? All they had was the promise of a coming Messiah. Their sins were not forgiven. Their sins were passed over. Their sins were covered. They were um, placed in Abraham's bosom as a holding tank (laughs) until such time as the sins of the world could be removed. We also have a glorifying Holy Spirit who indwells believers. The glorified Christ and the glorifying Holy Spirit who indwells believers. And we see the uh, verse 14 there. He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and disclose it to you. The glorifying Holy Spirit. As He guides us in the truth, He is glorifying Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ receives glory from the Father in heaven and He receives glory from the Holy Spirit on earth as the Holy Spirit teaches us the things of Christ. So Christ is now seated in heaven, indwelling us on earth and glorified in both dimensions. We also have a convicted world. When He comes, the Spirit of truth comes, He will convict. He will convict. And... uh, Verse 8 says, When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's a huge advantage for us. We're ambassadors in this fallen world. And for the first time ever, now Israel, of course, represented God and was supposed to have outreach to the Gentile nations. Gentiles themselves had stewardship. The believing Gentiles to the unbelieving Gentiles around them and so forth. Uh, But we are the first stewardship to have ambassadorial function to a fallen world a world under conviction. A world under global conviction by the Holy Spirit by virtue of the, uh, the work of the cross. Okay? This didn't happen before. It's a unique advantage. It's the greatest advantage ever enjoyed by vested stewards. See, And that's why, you, you, and you've, if you've ever experienced this, okay, maybe you have, uh, you're coming across somebody who is under such conviction and they've heard the gospel maybe 20 times before you got to them, and but now the, the Lord is just the father's working on them, the father's drawing them, the Holy Spirit is convicting them. Uh, they're just they're just ready. They're broken. They're being pulled. They're being drawn. They're just so ready. And they come up to you and they say, what do I got to do? How do I get saved? Well, you know what? I, and and they're just so ready. You could be the biggest blithering idiot on earth and still lead them to Christ at that moment because that's how ready they are. You could just, you know, go, you know, ooga booga. And and it's going to make sense. I've Maybe not that serious, but I mean, I've done, I have given crummy gospels. I remember the, the first boy I ever led to Christ in a Boy Scout camp out. We're laying in a tent, it's dark, it's two in the morning or whatever, and we're talking about heaven and the Bible. And and I give him the gospel as best as I knew how at that time. I was maybe 16, 15 or 16. And um, I just, I remember laying there just weeping in the dark, just weeping, 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 because... It was the worst gospel I'd ever heard in my life. It was crummy. It was a disaster. It was a train wreck. I knew that, that God hated me because I was the worst evangelist that ever walked this earth. And I just I just, I just, thought I'd wrecked it. This kid's going to hell and it's all my fault. See? And he told me, he said, that makes more sense than anything I've ever heard before in my life. Thank you for explaining that. Right? Well, how does that happen? Okay? It's only the Holy Spirit who can do that. So we have a convicted world. And they're convicted of sin. They're convicted of righteousness. They're convicted of judgment. All because Jesus Christ was victorious on the cross. Could not have been done prior to our stewardship. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Not because of the things they've done, but because they are still at this point unbelievers. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. We have a standard of righteousness that is eternal and heavenly and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The course that they've been following as unbelievers is under that condemnation. So we have a glorified Christ in the Father's presence, a glorifying Holy Spirit in our presence, indwelling believers. We have a convicted world and we have an instructed church. An instructed church. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will guide you into all the truth. You have indwelling you, God the Holy Spirit, and that is your teacher. That is your teacher. Regardless of who the human instrument is that stands behind the pulpit, God the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches you. Remember, Israel had a priesthood. We are a priesthood. Israel's priesthood and the priests and the Levites of the Old Testament, they were supposed to be the teachers of the, of the law for the Jewish people. And so in their stewardship, Israel had a priesthood to teach them. But in our stewardship, we are a priesthood. So who teaches us? The Holy Spirit that indwells us. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. Wouldn't trade that for anything. All right. Now we get to verses 16 through 22. And I told you I was going to rewrite point D, and here it is. Made multiple sentences out of it and made it longer. The world and the church are diametrically opposed. Period. End of sentence. Okay? Rather than the long run-on sentence that was unwieldy last week. Secondly, though, what makes the world rejoice should cause us to lament. What makes the world rejoice, their hatred of us and their seeming victories, what makes the world rejoice should cause us to lament, but our lamentation is only temporal. Because momentary affliction produces eternal glory. We may weep now, but our weeping will be turned to joy. We may weep now, and whatever defeat takes place. But every defeat is an ultimate victory, because at the end of the plan of God, we are in Christ for all eternity. When we reach Omega, we are in Christ. So point D again, the world and the church are diametrically opposed. What makes the world rejoice should cause us to lament, but our lamentation is only temporal because momentary affliction produces eternal glory. And it is so true. This these verses, you know, he said he's going to die. The world's going to rejoice. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while you will see me. All right. And the disciples have said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? See, they still don't want to ask a question. They're afraid of the answer. They know the answer. They just don't want to believe it. So in verse 19, are you deliberating together about this? That I said, a little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. I think this verse crushes the modern practice of the, uh, the cell group bible teaching method thing, right? When you have a gifted communicator who's been assigned the responsibility to feed the flock and teach the word of God, listen to them All right. There's other methodology process whereby you get 4 or 5 guys, 6 guys, 8 guys, you just sit around, uh sit around together, we'll open up your bibles and all, everybody looks at it and well what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And everybody just kind of makes a contribution, okay? Some people shouldn't be making a contribution. And, uh, you know, uh, Pastor Thiem used to call it pooling your collective ignorance. (laughs) All right? And uh, different aspects. Well, what have you ended up with? What have you ended up with? When Jesus is standing right there, why are you debating amongst yourselves? Go to the guy that's got the answers. See? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Well, why don't we just skip that grief part? Can we just go straight to the joy? Can we go straight to the joy without the grief part first? No. The answer is no. The grief is necessary. It actually produces a greater joy on the other end. Your hypothetical, well, I don't want to have any of this grief, would leave you with a diminished joy. Because it's taking you through the joy that produces that greater joy. I'm sorry. Taking you through the grief produces that greater joy. Alright? This comes to the very essence of that third temptation. When Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. He was offering Him the crown without the cross. He said, you don't have to suffer. You can have all this glory. I'll give it to you today. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't, you don't deserve that. You're better than that. You shouldn't have to go through that. That's terrible. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. Okay? The quick and easy route. Right. And no suffering. Isn't that easy? And it's the biggest lie. And people fall for it all the time. They fall for it all the time. They also think they can have victory in the Christian way of life without the hard work of Bible study. <laughs> okay? They can grow to maturity without testing. They can grow to maturity without submitting to the authority of a local church. There's no shortcuts. See, like telling an Olympic athlete that he can get the gold medal he never has to hit the, the weight room in the gym or anything. There are no shortcuts. It's long, hard work. All right. You will weep and lament. At least you should. You know, when the world's rejoicing, doesn't it make you lament? Don't you... You know, the things that they, the world finds to celebrate. You know, yeah, I lament. Absolutely, I lament. Remember Second Corinthians 4.17. Momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory. All right. The uh, illustration for this is with childbirth. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Okay? That's, that's just true. The Bible says it's true, and I've seen it. Absolutely true. My wife will testify to that. And uh, first words out of her mouth after Bob was born. Very first words. Can I tell the story? Very first words were, let's have another one. You know? After 12 hours of hating my guts calling me all kinds of names it was my fault (laughs) but the moment he was born and the doctor hands this little boy to her and she's holding him and she looks up at me and she says let's have another one can you imagine all right momentary light affliction therefore you too have grief now but i will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you now, it's interesting, too, that you will see me again. Is he talking about the post-resurrection appearance here on Easter Sunday? Or is he looking forward now to rapture? He's looking forward to, um, you know, you can kind of look at it both ways and, and actually have an application of this in both, both uh, understandings of that verse. Okay, now for the rest of this, verses 23 through 33. In that day, in that day, I think... You will see me again does reference the resurrection. It does reference uh, not only the fact that he ascends. We still see him. We just see him with our spiritual eyes. We see him with our spiritual focus. We set our minds on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We still see him. And that's a joy that we can never lose. Okay? All right. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Now, I love this contrast. I love this. Here they are, the night in which he's betrayed, and they're terrified to ask him anything because they don't want to know the answers. But in the coming church age, okay, for what you and I have today, we don't have to be afraid to ask anything. All right? And we're not asking Jesus. We're asking God the Father. Our stewardship is ultimately a paterological stewardship. No one comes to the Father but by me. We should be going to the Father. Every prayer is to the Father in Jesus' name. All right, we should be focused on the Father in our stewardship. And we go to Him. And the Father Himself loves you. We're going to talk about this. And um, we'll get into verse 27. All right, verse 24 says, "...until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full." This is far more than his joy being made full in us. This is now beyond that, our joy being made full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. And they're going to catch on to that in, um, very quickly. Verse 29. <laughs> they said, "Lo, now you're speaking plainly. They're finally starting to catch on to what he's telling them here on this night. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I would request to the Father on your behalf. In other words, you don't have to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you please ask the Father to give us this? Right? No. You don't need the mediator that way. You go directly to the Father. You don't need a saint to pray for. You don't need Mary to pray to put in a good word for you with Jesus so that Jesus puts in a good word for you to the Father. Like the Romans tell you you got to do. Score those Mary Brownie points so that She prays to Jesus and Jesus prays to the Father and you you can earn the the grace that you're trying to earn. Damaging and blasphemous the way they use grace that way. They call it grace, but it's anything but. No, you go straight to the Father. The Father himself phileos you because you have phileoed me. We start to develop because we love Christ with agape. We now phileo Christ and this is what makes our prayer life just come alive the rapport fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son. For the Father himself phileoes you because you have with me and have and believed that I came forth from the Father. I've come forth from the Father. I've come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. This mission is accomplished. There's more work to be done. Greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. Okay? Now they're excited. Here's your point of study. Point E. The coming church will be a paterological stewardship grounded in our position in Christ. The coming church will be a paterological stewardship grounded in our position in Christ. Paterological. From the Greek pater, meaning Father. Father. Pater plus Lagos. is paterology. Paterology. We go to the Father. He is the one we serve. He is the one that's at work in us to willing to do of His good pleasure. He is the one that indwells us, appealing through us in our ministry of reconciliation. Remember, it was the Father who was in the world in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the world's trespasses against him, and it's the Father that's in you, committing to, to us this word of this ministry of reconciliation. We are a paterological stewardship, a paterological stewardship, and this is also unique. Gentiles didn't have this, Israel didn't have this. They had kind of a general stewardship and an understanding of Elohim, or Yahweh Elohim in the, Jew, in the Jews' case, or El Elyon in the Gentiles' case. Okay, But. Abba, Father. What we've seen in Romans last Sunday, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit indwelling us and testifying with our spirit that we are children of God, the battle cry, our soul, just our spirits alive and our soul spirit just cries out Abba, Father. Israel didn't have that. Gentiles didn't have that. This is our advantage. This is our stewardship. Again, pater means father. Logos, study of. Uh, remarkably enough, I don't care if you read Schaefer, you read Geisler, you read Strong's, you read Hodge, you read. Pick any systematic theology ever written in the English language. Show me one that has a paterology. They'll have a theology proper that addresses Trinity and the general aspects of God, and then they may break it down into Christology to get to develop God the Son, and a, the good ones will have a pneumatology to develop God the Holy Spirit. Show me the one that has a paterology that specifically, none of them do. They just say, well, that's just theology proper, God in general. And they don't specialize in understanding the heart of the Father in that role. All right? And I've waited 20 years for Ralph to write it, and he hasn't done it yet. (laughs) And I'm terrified he's going to die and go to heaven and leave it for my generation to try to write something up. Okay. Well, this is what we're looking at. The disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know all you know, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And yet that's the advantage they're gonna have. They're gonna be able to go to the Father with all their questions. They're gonna be have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Uh, guiding them into all truth, even the deep things of God. And they're going to have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on their behalf as their advocate. They're going to have a full trinity on board in this coming church age. No wonder they're excited about it. And so Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. It's kind of interesting. Chapter 16 almost has bookends. It opens up with conflict. It closes with conflict here. An hour is coming and already has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And the final thing, point F, the final point of study here for chapter 16, the coming church will be a stewardship of peace within Tribulation. The coming church will be a stewardship of peace within tribulation, because Jesus Christ is the overcomer. Because Jesus Christ is the overcomer. Who is the overcomer? Well, we are because we believe in Christ, according to First John. But He is, because He is. <laughs> Because of his victory, because of his faithfulness, he is the overcomer. This is why the, the he who overcomes rewards of Revelation 2 and 3 are so beautiful to study. And uh, the grace of recognizing that it's a, it's a positional inheritance for us in the bride, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because we've believed in Jesus Christ and he is the overcomer. The hidden manna, the white stone, all the rewards that are promised to he who overcomes. Those are all rewards being given by the Father to Jesus Christ, being given to us because we're in Christ. All right, He's the heir of all things; we're the heir of all things, fellow heirs with the heir of all things. So the coming church will be a stewardship of peace within tribulation, and this is where believers, I think, miss the boat. In the the pop culture Christianity that we have, is it's it's they don't like the, the tribulation, right? They define peace as an absence of tribulation—that's their definition of peace. Say, look, I have I have peace in my in my uh, marriage as long as we don't fight, or I have peace in my church as long as we don't fight. I have peace in my Christian walk as long as I don't have any testing going on. I don't want any I don't want any affliction. Okay, and how many believers are chasing what uh, Ken Jensen used to call tranquility lust? Right. And it's just a form of lust where they, they run from any, any kind of conflict. They don't want the confrontation. They don't want the conflict. They don't want the argument. So they just run from it. And he calls it a tranquility lost. See? I'm not sure that he made that up, but that's who I learned it from. Pastor Ken Jensen taught that. Tranquility lost. And um, in any event, that's not the definition. How about peace within Tribulation. Not, you know, despite tribulation, you know, no matter what. Now, don't take this the wrong way. Of course, the anti-rapture people look at this and say, see, right there, the church has to go through the tribulation. As if it's capital T, capital T, the tribulation. Okay, that's not what it says. They read it that way because they don't know what they're reading. Um, they're confusing tribulation in general with a lowercase t. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will encounter difficult times. We all do. And that's actually not new to the church age. That was a feature of Israel stewardship. as a feature of Gentile stewardship. No one doubts that Job had tribulation. No one doubts that Moses and David and Daniel, all those guys, of course they had tribulation. Believers have always had tribulation. What they didn't have was an overcoming Savior seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what we have. So this passage does not mean that the church has to go through the tribulation. If anybody tries to tell you that and tries to take you there to prove that, don't let them. Because it's not capital T, tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. right? That's not. I'll show them another passage that says we're not destined for tribulation. So they're both true. Reconcile them and and then uh, have a clear dispensational understanding. It's a stewardship of peace within tribulation because Jesus Christ is the overcomer. Uh, Israel didn't have this. Peace I lead to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. That is a unique bequest to the church. It was not a feature of Israel's stewardship. They had peace when David gave them rest from their enemies on every hand. Okay? They had a military peace, a temporal life peace, a political, military peace. We have an inner stability peace of the soul. All right, wouldn't trade that for anything. <laughs> you know, the more you study the Church Age, the more you just fall on your knees and say, "Thank you, Father." You know, some people are thankful they were born with modern air conditioning, modern plumbing, HEB grocery stores. You know, prepackaged meat. You know, how would how would I do if I had to butcher the animal and, you know, or first if I had to hunt my animal and then butcher it and then um all of that no i I'm, I'm thankful for modern conveniences air conditioning indoor plumbing uh you know grocery stores this stuff's great i wouldn't you know that's that's great but and and i'm thankful for that but so much more so so much more so that i've got a victorious savior seated at the right hand of god the father that i am a believer priest in christ I don't need an advocate. I don't need an intercessor. I don't need a confessor. I don't need to go to a priesthood because I'm part of a priesthood. I don't have to make a pilgrimage to a holy temple in a holy city. Okay? Because an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. All the, all the uh, blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is in Christ. That's the church. Israel didn't have that. Gentiles didn't have that. Angels don't have that. We have that. And who are we? So, there it is. A member of the royal family of God. Which gets us now into chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said. Okay, so Jesus spoke these things. Jesus spoke these things. This is our clue in the text that the discourse is over. The discourse is over. It's now time for his closing prayer to the Father. Okay, Bible class is—excuse me, Bible class is over. So you could take 13:31 uh, to 16:33, and that is the Upper Room and Walk to the Garden discourse. And then append to that the uh, the real Lord's Prayer. Okay. I call this the real Lord's Prayer, not the baby prayer that he modeled in Our Father Who Art in Heaven when the disciples said, teach us to pray, even as John also taught his disciples. Okay. He gave them that model prayer as an introduction to prayer on an uh, introductory basis. No, this is the real Lord's Prayer. This is his high priestly prayer to the Father on behalf of his priesthood. <coughs> So Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So we get to point nine then. In the outline. Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. John, Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer. If you want to put it down, I believe it's Hebrews 3.1. Jesus, the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession. If you want teaching on that, go get Glenn's mp3 files off the website. Glenn carnegie has been teaching this. The apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus ends this discourse with a high priestly prayer on behalf of the imminent priesthood of the church. <clears throat> Something else that I think would be worthwhile is going back to the Old Testament, reading the chapters that describe the consecration of Aaron and his sons, when the tabernacle was complete, when the when the Levitical priesthood was established, when they were consecrated, when their robes were cleansed, when their all the furnishings were. Were uh, sanctified at the inauguration, and Moses had a huge role in that to uh, to ordain them and to appoint them. And read what his prayer was, okay? And then go to Second uh, Samuel. No, I'm sorry, First Kings. Go to First Kings, chapter eight, I think. Read in First Kings when Solomon dedicates the temple. And again, it's a prayer to the Father. And it's a recognition of this temple as being a place that prayers could be directed. uh, The temple as being a place where Israel could approach God. Okay? Those two episodes, I think the consecration of Aaron and the the, uh, establishment of the the tabernacle. And then again, it happens again when when, uh, Solomon dedicates the temple there. We have prayers that are like um, inauguration messages, as it were. Inaugurating a new era that's about to begin in their stewardship. I find some parallels and similarities here in John 17. What is it that Jesus is praying about? What is it that he's praying about here in this chapter? And you'll notice a lot of it is reflective to what he's finished in his first advent. But more of it is actually anticipating what it is his disciples are going to have to deal with once he's gone. And he's praying on their behalf. And he doesn't ask God to take them out of the world. He's going out of the world. He's going to be seated in glory. But he's asking for the disciples that they be protected from the evil one. And he's asking for the disciples. He says, um, you'll note here in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on the, about of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Remember, every time you see the Apostle John writing about the cosmos, he's contrasting believers with the cosmos. Okay? And we see it again here. We've seen it a dozen times probably in uh, in the Gospel of John so far. So, uh, the fact that, uh, that they are no longer in the world, that uh, he is no longer in the world. He says, uh, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. They're in it, but not of it. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Not my name, your name. Remember, the church age is paterological. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. You know, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that's now available for the church. We and the Father are one because we're in Christ. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. That's verse 12, which you have given me. And I guarded them, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. God gave him eleven believers and one unbeliever to be his twelve disciples. The only one that's perishing is Judas. Then, uh, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so he's looking forward to what they're going to experience after he's gone. Um, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So we see that we are now the ambassadors. Even as the Father has sent him, he has sent us. We are now in this world. We are now uh, the, the ministers of reconciliation where the Father is working through us. Keep them from the evil one. Church age is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Satan has more permissive will. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Okay? wasn't the feature in Israel. wasn't the feature in the Gentiles. It is the feature in our age, the age of satanic sifting. Satan has permission to sift us. But Jesus is praying. We need to understand this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And it breaks my heart how many believers aren't sanctified in the truth. They're not disciples. They're not under authority of, of a local church. They're not under systematic teaching, line upon line, precept upon precept. They may they may have a casual interest in the truth on a curiosity basis. You know, pick up uh, some helpful hints here and there. Get some, uh, you know, chicken soup doctrine for uh, for tough times. And But the idea... The idea of taking the next year and assembling together for 260 hours of teaching? Oh my, who has time for that? Being a part of a local church and getting 200 or more hours of teaching in a calendar year? Who has time for that? See, or, uh, you know, 1,000 over the next five years? 2,000 over the next 10 years? Are you a disciple or not? Okay. That's an awful lot. Don't be extreme. What are you, a fanatic? Come on. Once a week, that's good. Three or four times a month, that's good. And then you end up being, even the once a week crowd is not 52 times a year. It averages 40. It averages 40 because you get a couple weeks of vacation and then you pretty much miss one a month or thereabouts. And so basically the once a week crowd is functionally 40 times a year. 40 times a year. That's what all the conferences are geared towards. In fact preachers have to give forty sermons a year. (laughs) And then they have missionary reports and guest speakers and associate pastors and seminary students and they they have other you know, the other twelve weeks a year get filled in with other activities and events. But basically your denominational pastor has to has to somehow create forty sermons a year. That's what he has to do. And that's hard work. They have conferences, that they call them the over 40 conferences. What happens if you have to give over 40 messages in a year? Where do you get ideas? Where do you get material? How do you, how do you create, them? I mean, how do you teach so much kind of a thing, all right? Well, that's the approach. And our believers in, and I'm not trying to mock and I'm not bragging, and you understand my, my heart in, in illustrating this, okay? Ask yourself, who is sanctified in the truth? Who is set apart for God's holiness? Who is a disciple of the Word of God? Who is abiding in the Word of God, living in the Word of God? That is where they make their home. That is where they're comfortable. That is where they belong. That is where they know it inside and out. Other people are just visitors. Say, they, they're, they're acquaintances. They, they occasionally, you know, they occasionally visit the place. And so for them, it's a hotel room. It's not a house. And this is the, uh, the imagery, the metaphor of what we're dealing with. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now notice, as you sent me into the world, I have also have sent them into the world. What does that mean? We're going to be hated. We're going to be abused. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to suffer. Who, do we, who are we to think that we're not going to go through that? And and maybe the most important verse in this whole chapter, hard to say because this is the most intense chapter of the Gospel of John, I think. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Verse 20 takes the entire upper room discourse and expands it to the entire church age. It's not limited to the 11. It is not limited to the founding apostles of the church. The people that try to say, oh, well, Peter was the first pope and he was the rock and Jesus, you know, it was all about him. And you can't say No, they're wrong. This verse shows. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. This this prayer, this message, this prayer is not only for the eleven. But for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, all church age believers any human being that comes to faith in Christ through the apostolic message of the the Greek New Testament. You want to rewrite verse 20? Rewrite verse 20. For those also who believe in me through their word, any born-again believer in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in the apostolic gospel message of the Greek New Testament. Hello, you and me. (laughs) Nobody here in this room is old enough to have been saved with an Old Testament gospel. We got saved by the apostolic message of the gospel of the Greek New Testament. And so Jesus is praying for us in this chapter. Write your own name in there. That's me in verse 20. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our positional truth, unity in Christ, is supposed to be a testimony of this lost and dying world. All right, so you can see this is a high priestly prayer on behalf of the eminent priesthood of the church. He is praying for those priests under him. He's the great high priest. This is like Aaron and his sons. Okay, He had a high priest and other priests. Nadab and Abihu, they didn't last too long, but they were consecrated along with Eleazar all right, and Ithamar. The four sons of Aaron were consecrated at the same time Aaron was. And here's Jesus, our high priest, and He's praying on our behalf. Sanctifying His priesthood, the the royal Melchizedek priesthood of the church age. Praying for it right here. And it's going to be an even greater glory. This is what's awesome. It's it's hard to fathom this. The glory which you have given Me, I have given to them. Wow. (laughs) Because I don't... I don't feel glorified most days. Okay, There's a lot of days I just don't feel glorified. But thank goodness, glorification is not a feeling. <laughs> it is not an emotion. We don't have to keep the, the spiritual pep rally going to maintain our sense of glorification. It is a reality. And we'll see this again coming up in Romans 8 on Sunday mornings. Those that he knew, he, he called. And those that he called, he glorified. Okay? We'll deal with that. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. See, and who has time for this? You realize this is so infinite, this is so spiritual, this is so heavenly and this is so unnecessary in the world's view of church. 21st century churchianity. What do they need? What You realize churches today are all about felt needs. Churches today are all about what do I get out of this. Churches today are all about how do I get blessed? How do I get provided for? How do I get my uh, uh, my tears wiped? Right? My head my head padded. I want to be okay. I pick out a church based upon their youth group, based upon their singles ministry, based upon their daycare options, based upon whatever. Okay? Do they have a good gym. Say, I go to the church for their their gym program. Hmm. Now, I'm part of the royal family of God. I'm supposed to be perfected in unity, in Christ, in the Father. So that the cosmos may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You have loved Me. You're supposed to be the living testimony of God the Father's love. And even if that means you're crucified, well, take up your cross then. Follow Jesus. This world needs to know that you are the object of God the Father's love. All right. It ends, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. So, all throughout this, are you picking up on this relationship of believers to the world? Right, they're still in the world, but they're no longer of the world. The world hates them. The world is, is uh, opposed to them. They have to be testimonies to the world. Okay, you understand how the author, how John uses the cosmos in all of his gospels, or in his gospel, add all of his epistles. All right, then you don't fall for the Calvinist misunderstanding of First John two two that Christ died for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Alright? You'll start to understand that Christ died for our sins as well as the sins of the cosmos. And you don't fall for the misunderstanding of that passage. Alright. have uh, The cosmos has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love which, with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So this is his prayer, and then uh, and then they scatter. <laughs> All right, uh, he takes them across the ravine, and uh, from the other gospel records, we realize that only three of them. He only takes three of them into the garden. The others, are, you know, the other eight depart before that, and then these three are going to scatter when he gets arrested, and uh, and so forth. All right, we'll pick up on this next week. Um, we're going to start with glory his prayer begins with an amazing focus on glory and i'm not surprised the prayer in verse in chapter 17 starts the very same way that the message started back in chapter 13 and so chew on it in the next seven days but remind yourself how did the message start in chapter 13 well when when he had gone out jesus said now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. The message in chapter 13 started with a message of glory to His disciples. And so He ends that message and He starts His prayer. His prayer, just like the message, His prayer starts in glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. So 1331 starts the message. 171 starts the prayer. And these are so in tandem. These are so in, in uh, parallel to one another. You can't help but notice it. It would, it would, be, it would be tragic to miss it. And so I'm going to stress it and uh, not allow any of us to, to miss the, uh, the wonderful parallel here. We'll come back to this next hour or next week. Lord willing and rapture pending, Father, thank you for your truth, thank you for our Savior, thank you for uh, His diligence on this night in which He was betrayed, His final night of work assignment, and uh, and He is serving on behalf of these eleven, and even the twelfth, even Judas, He calls Him friend. Father, uh, just amazing, as I as I dwell on your your Son, my Lord, and the example that He set. And, uh, Father, thank you for that example. Might we all pattern our thinking, our words, and our deeds all after the example that he set. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.